Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books in Sociology podcast. I am Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with the author of Social Research Matter, Julia Brannan. How are you doing today? I'm just fine, thank you. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project? Well, actually I was approached by a publisher. um, I think because um, I've I've been working as a social science researcher for over 40 years and um, research has been my full-time job throughout my working life. So um, that's how uh, and, and she asked me whether I'd be interested in writing about my life in research and about my work. So that, that's how I, I got to write this book. Great. You know, you give us so much information here. I was wondering if you could explain what is meant by biographical contingencies and how they play a role in the phase of a life course of a researcher. Well, um, life course contingencies, I should perhaps explain what that means. Um, It means um, who your parents are, their occupations, where you grew up, the generation you belong to, the gender that you are. And all of these things can um, are are relevant um, to, to your to the way your life progresses. So. In terms of my career as a researcher, um, I grew up, I belong to a particular generation born in the middle of the 1940s in Britain. Uh, And at that time, even those with university degrees who were a very tiny minority, as you can imagine, didn't expect to have a career. I mean, most of us, I suppose, didn't think much beyond marriage and motherhood. And in Britain at the time, there were no childcare facilities. 
So in, in shaping my own career, I would say that the women's movement in the 1970s, second wave feminism, coincided with the time that I was emerging from bringing up small children. And it was the impetus for my finding a, a, a meaningful job. Um, uh, and, uh, and I chose to, uh, to, to become a researcher um, uh, it, and gave me the opportunity to foreground gender in my research and to examine the ways in which women were oppressed in the labour market and in the home at that time, and to do something about it. I hope, I thought, hopefully, in those days of um, uh, of, of social, you know, with, where there was a, a strong emphasis on, on social change back in the, the 1970s, the Black Power Movement and the Women's Movement. So I was attracted to research, which um, was exploring women's lives. Um, but biographical contingencies also caught up with me in my latter part of my career. Um, um, when, um, be because of my years at home, um, I, I, I was um, faced with the possibility of losing out. Um, and um, at the point when I hit retirement age, which in Britain was 65, um, I was still in the middle of a research career, um, or so I thought. Um, so, you know, it, at, at the point in my life when chronological age came up against it wasn't the same thing as career age at all. But anyway, the, the short the, the, the end of the story was that shortly afterwards, the European Union uh, abolished retirement age, and I was officially permitted to ask to go on working. So I hope that gives you an idea of biographical contingencies affecting a career in research. Yes, it does. Thank you so much. Now, you talked about having no television in your home. How do you think that shaped your research questions? I'm not sure I did. That's right. I don't remember writing that because we did have a television, um, but not early on in my life. Um, my father worked in the electronics industry um, and well, which was getting off the ground then, and um, we had a, a television on loan. So um, I, I don't, I don't remember that at all. So, okay. <laughs> but I, I would say that television, uh, in 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 terms of social science research, is much or has been much less important than social media, in terms of the way we communicate um, our research uh, with the world. Now, you did talk about mentors. Can you explain to the audience the importance of having a mentor? Um, in well, I did write about that, and I remember that. Um, and I'm, I talk about the people who mentored me um, at critical points in my career when I was going for uh, promotion, um, turning my um, a book I'd written into a PhD, for example. Um, and, but I, 
thinking back, I think I was lucky that these people kind of appeared on the scene to encourage me rather than my seeking them out as mentors. And, and I now think that um, mentoring can be important, but I also think it's a very individualistic thing and not particularly effective. And um, a colleague of mine who wrote a book on management in higher education in Ireland um, says that men that she and male academics that she interviewed um, didn't talk about mentors um, in relation to their progress and advancement up the up the um, ladders. Rather, they they talk they they depended upon the actions of, of sponsors. Um, they were proteges of senior academics who enabled them to secure. Um, promotion and positions. So I think that, you know, sponsorship um, is, is what gets you, uh, gets you on in life rather than having only having a mentor. Can you give us a little information or maybe an example of a sponsorship? Well, for example, um, as I, I said, it, if, if you're, you have um, if you're a junior researcher working to a senior researcher, they, they can, they're in a position often to secure or to put you on a research grant application um, of their own. Um, and, and therefore, you know, you don't have to just go on the open market to, to, to find a job. And I think that, 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 that does happen. Um, and the more people you have in uh, women in senior positions, the more able to do that um, for for other women that they have uh, who, who have worked with them uh, in in junior roles. Thank you. What did you find about the work life balance throughout your research? Um, well, um, in terms of whether I think things have got better or worse. Um, in some ways, I think things have got better. Um, there are now clearly there are now more senior um, women are in have a greater share of senior positions in universities and, and in other organisations, and there are now national and workplace policies concerning, concerning maternity leave, parental leave. And of course, diversity policies. There weren't those uh, in the period in which, um, well, there were, there were barely those, and they certainly didn't work very well uh, when I was um, uh, at the beginning of my career. Um, however, in, in, in the last 10, 15 years, I think the workplace has become much more intensive. Uh, in the science, social science research world, um, researchers um, tend to be of lower status than academics um, who are in teaching positions. And researchers are on short-term contracts uh, in this country. And, um, and certainly in the past, this was also the case, um, but in the past, um, in a sense, we weren't expected to compete in the way that the academics did, who'd got tenured positions. Um, and as a field worker, when, when I first 
started out in research, um, I had more freedom to and time for other responsibilities and activities, which I, I often uh, worked you know, on writing books and so forth in my spare time. And there was time to do that. Um, and I think in the workforce today, and for mothers in particular, um, the pressures are huge. Um, there's great competition within and between universities, which makes for a very individualistic and competitive um, work experience. And digital technologies have speeded up workplaces enormously in the whole work process so that we're never kind of off the job, so to speak. Um, and, and the internal pressures for women to be the best possible mothers are much greater than they were uh, when I was bringing up children. Um, so I think um, the, the pressures on women today are enormous and the discourse of choice that pervades everything does have its own constraints. You know, you feel you're never doing um, or, or choose, making the right choice or, 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 or are doing quite enough. Um, and however, having said all that, I think context makes a lot of difference. By that, I mean, it depends on the country you live in, the job that you have, the national policies that support gender equity, um, the, the, your line manager, um, whether you have a supportive partner, um, what kind of father that person is, and the quality and the cost of the childcare. And we did a number of um, studies in, in five different countries, and we looked at particular kinds of households. We tried to match the households in the different organizations and countries. And we showed how the particular mix of resources available to those parents made a difference um, uh, in terms of their experience. Uh, of being a working parent. So that, you know, in, in a, um, uh, I, to give an example, um, if, if you were a childcare worker in Sweden, um, the policies both at work and, and the, the, the context, the local context was, was more supportive than if you were working in Britain, for example, in a similar kind of job. However, you know, the other aspects could, could come into play, like whether you happen to live near your job or not, which could make an enormous difference in terms of whether you felt supportive or whether you have relatives living ne nearby who could step in if the child was not well enough to go to daycare, for example. So I hope you give, that gives you just a little flavour of, of um, the kind of work we were doing. So it's kind of very micro, but trying to take of the broader context of, you know, childcare policies, um, the workplace um, and, and the national context um, and, and national policies. You know, you talked a lot about um, food insecurities. Can you explain to the audience a little bit more about 
low-income households and food insecurities? Your findings there? Yes, I mean, this was quite a, a, a um, this again was an, an international study. And we were looking at um, food poverty, as we called it, um, after the global financial crisis. So we selected um, three countries, two countries that were hit very hard by the financial crisis, um, Portugal and the UK, and a country which was much less affected. And um, we examined food poverty in terms of three dimensions, the material aspects of food, how much food you have, whether you go hungry or not, the quality of the food, um, the social aspects, whether um, you were enabled to be able to socialize with others in terms of food activities like, you know, inviting people home and so forth, eating out with, with your friends uh, and so on. And the emotional, psychological aspects of food to do with um, um, shame and stigma um, of not having enough to eat. So we, we looked at these kind of aspects um, and we found um, it's a very long, complex picture, really. Um, but um, in terms of the material aspects of food, um, across all three countries, we found that one of the ways that um, mothers um, managed food poverty was to, to go without food to sacrifice their own food intake um, for their children and to skip meals. Uh, we, we looked um, particularly at the role of school meals in mitigating food poverty, free school meals. And we found that in Portugal, um, free school meals were highly significant. They helped mothers uh, um, to budget in the household because they knew that their children were having a meal in, in the middle of the day. And um, because of Portugal's national policies on school meals, um, the children had um, a three-course meal in the middle of the day. And this is, this is regulated in, in Portuguese legislation. And the meal has to consist of uh, a proportion of protein, um, of fruit and vegetables, and always has to have soup uh, to start with, things like that. So that, was, um, that helped to mitigate food poverty in Portugal. Whereas um, in Britain, although there is a free school meals policy, it's not a very adequate one. I mean, children the allowance that children have um, doesn't really buy them a proper meal, for example. And in Norway, which is a, a rich country, um, they don't have school, school, school meals isn't, isn't um, available in most schools. There isn't a national policy of school meals. So um, it's, again, the burden of school food is on parents and and 
although there wasn't a lot of food poverty in Norway, there were some families like um, uh, new migrants who didn't qualify for the full uh, welfare benefits available um, to those who've got a work record in, in, in Norway. Um, that the, the burden of school food was quite considerable because food is extremely expensive in a country like Norway. And um, on, on the social dimensions of food poverty, we found that a third of um, parents said they couldn't afford their, to allow their children to have their friends home for something to eat. Um, and the same proportion of young people said they couldn't socialize with their friends if it involved any activities that involve food or eating or, or, or anything to do with spending money. Um, and in a way, the social, the emotional dimension of food poverty was the saddest part of our study, especially um, for children. Um, children, some of the children describe feeling different or excluded or, or ashamed because they'd no money um, to socialize with their friends or, or, um, or in other ways. And one boy who, who was um, the son of a migrant who had no, um, whose family had no, um, was not allowed to get any benefits from the state because they didn't have um, settled status in Britain. Um, he described his shame at having to hide in the school library at lunchtime um, because he wasn't eligible for a free school meal and had no money. So those kinds of things were, were, were pretty shocking, really. Um, now, what can a researcher learn about families by using the life story analysis? Um, well, I want to, to uh, emphasize two aspects to it. First, um, if you ask people in, in research to tell their life story, uh, it allows you to put their life in historical context. And it also allows you to compare their lives with the lives of other people of a similar generation and a similar class and, and, and um, position, if you like. Um, uh, and life, family life stories, like all stories, are also narratives. Um, they're given in response to the invitation to tell a story. Um, and it's, it's a performance. So as researchers, we, we have to be attentive to the fact that stories are told to and for audiences. And also um, to the point that um, people tell stories often because they have a story that they want to tell. And this is often related to some kind of major event in their lives or a rupture in their lives that they're trying to make sense of. So 
we also have to take account of these stories are not mirrors of the past. They're told from the vantage point of the present, the way people see them from the present, their present point in their lives, and also because they're having an eye to the future. So life stories tell us about identities, what people have become, who they are now, and who they'd like to be. Well, we... Uh, Sorry. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say life stories also tell us about what people, what is not told, the silences, the events and phases in the life um, that they don't, that they skip over or don't talk about. So they point to things that uh, we need to think about or to ask about if they're not too uh, sensitive or people want to talk about them. And I found the life story approach very useful in understanding families, especially when you can ask um, different generations in a family to tell their life stories. And you can identify then what um, values, um, what services, what support they pass on across the generations and what they don't pass on or what a new generation or the successive generation um, creates differently or creates anew. So um, it is um, life stories uh, is a very useful way of looking at change and continuity in families. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. I've enjoyed our conversation. Can you tell the audience what are you working on next? Well, um, I'm sort of at, towards the end of a lot of things, but things pop up. Um, but what I can say in these times of this dreadful pandemic, it's made me want to go on working with other people, albeit like talking to you often on Zoom. Um, uh, and I suppose to a large extent, um, if I'm going to go on working with other people, the, um, the topics are going to be, well, or the way we study them is going to be determined by them. But I, I'm not sure, but let's see. Let's see what the future holds. 